Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer for the Baptist system. And hey, everyone, I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And today we want to welcome Dr. David Zoss to our podcast. Uh, Dr. Zoss is the CEO of the Charleston Division of MUSC in South Carolina and also the chief clinical officer for the MUSC system. Dr. Zoss, welcome and, uh, and, and tell us a little bit about yourself. No, thank you both. I uh, really appreciate the uh, chance to join you and have this conversation. Uh, I've been fortunate uh, in now 25 years of my career to have three or four different careers, uh, a pulmonary and critical care physician with a passion in lung transplant, uh, the opportunity to have great mentors uh, and career development opportunities in almost 20 years at Duke Health in different roles, and moved here to Charleston, South Carolina, going on uh, three years this spring with the privilege of uh, leading our health system as the chief clinical officer, as you mentioned, of uh, almost 20,000 care team members across South Carolina and our 14 hospitals. And, and another thing that you didn't mention, and, and which is so cool, is that you actually uh, you actually played football at Yale. Is that right? I did. I was. And, uh, I grew I mean, up how, in Cleveland. How cool is that to to go to a great Ivy League school plus get to play sports? I mean, that's uh, you know you got the best best of both worlds. Yeah, I think my good luck started when I was 18, and it's still going right now. That people probably keep giving me a, a lot of really <laughs> exciting opportunities. Uh, I'm not sure I deserve them all, but I'm um, I'm good at making the most of them. And, and I interrupt you. you. You grew up in Cleveland, and I grew up in in Cleveland, Ohio, and developed a a passion for medicine actually in high school with some opportunities to get exposed to some amazing physician scientists at the Cleveland Clinic. And uh, knew early on what I wanted to do uh, in healthcare. Well, David, thanks again for for joining us. We've had a lot of physicians on the the platform, and we we love just for them to walk through their journey of how they got into either continuous improvement or how they got into healthcare leadership. So, can you take us through your journey? Yeah, no, I would love to, and maybe I'll start uh, a little bit around healthcare leadership um, and start with that part. You know, I really started my career as the traditional physician scientist. Uh, that was the mentors I was exposed to uh, when I was young uh, through my residency at Hopkins and really was on that more traditional path of writing NIH grants and focusing on basic science discovery and absolutely loved it. But early after fellowship, had the opportunity to lead one of the largest lung transplant programs in the country and realized I needed to develop some skill sets to lead people, to build teams, to run programs, and went back to school to get my MBA with really the focus on building and running a lab uh, and running a clinical program, and loved every second uh, along the way. I was fortunate to have others that saw even greater potential in me, I believe, than I saw in myself and allowed me to develop as a leader, as a vice chair for the Department of Medicine, as a chief medical officer for a large academic faculty practice, uh, and then eventually a hospital CEO. And I realized while I'm passionate about clinical medicine and science and lung transplantation, uh, what really energizes me is leading teams, building programs, 
trying to see how I can make a bigger impact uh, and really embracing challenges. And I, I was fortunate through a series of, of career opportunities over the last two decades uh, to evolve and really build onto some of those skills that I really think I developed as a physician scientist uh, early in my career. You know, that's your your journey. We We hear that story so often. And, you know, now we're seeing more and more physicians like yourself who are in big, big leadership roles, you know, not 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 just CMOs, but but CEOs of, of big, large health systems. Why do you think that that trend is happening and, and, and how do you see the future? Do, do you do you think we're going to see more and more physicians entering into large leadership roles? I'll have to admit my bias, right? So uh, we all have to have, and this is more sure. than implicit bias. That I really do believe, as healthcare continues to accelerate the pace of change, uh, and we've talked about this throughout our careers, but that physician leadership is going to be more and more important as we talk about transforming healthcare. The ability to right understand the clinical delivery system from being a physician and a provider combined with developing the experience and skill sets of running operations and programs, I think enable physician leaders to have a uniquely positioned to lead teams through change. I think it helped me moving down to Charleston, South Carolina as a pandemic was starting having to lead teams in the time of stress to pivot quickly, as we all did, but to still be a physician leader who understood the importance of the relationships, who could understand the impact on patients and families, who our care team members trusted that our top priority is the quality and safety of the care we provide, as well as the safety of our care team members, but also has built the experience over the last decade of running operations in a financially sustainable way, but still focused on on mission. And there's a lot of outstanding non-physician leaders, um, but I think especially within academic health systems uh, and in times of periods of of rapid change, I tell people I think I have an unfair advantage sometimes uh, over non-physician leaders by bringing these different experiences together to help ensure that, right, I'm leading with the, you know, a thousand providers that we have here in in Charleston, in addition to our our thousands of of nurses and other care team members. I think it's really great. And I would love to hear more about, you know, how how do you build trust with uh, you know, new groups as you move from, you know, maybe another organization to a new organization? What What is your strategy for doing that? So uh, I love the question about trust. And I, I think the uh, it's something that we don't talk about enough, both clinically. Um, we talk a lot uh, and we probably can all reflect in our, our med school journeys and others. We learned a lot. But I'm not sure anyone ever taught me about how you create trust in patients and families and you as a physician. Uh, and I think there's similar principles to say, all right, 
I have over 3,000 nurses and over 850 physicians. How do I create trust? As a young leader, I probably made the mistake that many people do, which is I believe that you proved and developed trust by showing you were really good at what you did. Mm -hmm. You proved you're really competent. And I think that's the mistake that a lot of young leaders make because our care team members assume we're really good at what we do. Our patients and families assume we're really good at what we do and that we're very competent. But the key determinant in my mind of trust is character. I think we need to focus more as leaders. How do our teams understand our character, our values, our intent? When I was hired here at MUSC or when I've been promoted to different roles, I believe that people believed I could do the job. They question new leaders to say, right, am I aligned with their values? Do I believe in their character? Are they someone I I really can connect with? So I I think whether it's a clinician trying to develop trust in patients and families, how do you demonstrate your character? If you're a leader leading teams, do we focus enough on showing our teams our commitment to values, our character? How do we demonstrate that transparency, honesty, vulnerability uh, that help them see our character. Uh, And for me, at least, that's the secret to developing trust, which is right essential. It's the foundation for all the things that we want to accomplish, all the things that we put on our balance scorecard is developing that trust. Yeah, I I think you, you, you mentioned it, but I was thinking about vulnerability. And, you know, we we as physicians, we were <clears throat> always expected to have every answer, you know, the right answer. And a lot of times, you know, even with patients, when you when you might not know the answer, you kind of made something up, you know, because it was it, it was seen as weakness if, if you didn't have an answer. And I, I think that's an important part of being a leader is is, is admitting being vulnerable. Hey, I, I don't know what we're going to do here, but we're going to figure it out, you know, as a as a team. And I think as we move into larger leadership roles and and different responsibilities, right, that vulnerability, that transparency, um, the humility, right, becomes so essential for our teams to have trust. And over the last almost three years of the pandemic, right, I think that has been even more important when you look at the stress that our care team members have at work that our care team members have at home uh, with all the uncertainty and stress that they face. So I think it's helped me grow as a leader and hopefully helped our team grow together um, that we're going to be a lot stronger after the last two and a half years from what we've been through and do even greater things. No, I think that's, that's a great answer. I'm glad you, you mentioned humility. You know, we've talked a lot about humble inquiry on, on the program and asking questions that you you really want to know the answer to that you're not just asking questions just because you know the answer, you know, like the normal pimping. But if you're if you're working with somebody, working with a colleague and trying to help them out with a problem, not offering that immediate answer, that immediate solution, but really asking humbly, trying to get to the root of, of the thing that they're trying to, to work through and help them arrive at, at the answer themselves sometimes is is a good approach. Um, you also, you know, you mentioned you jumped from being a CMO and you are the C, CEO 
currently um, to a CEO of a hospital. What was the biggest, I guess, change with those roles? Um, what what skill set does uh, maybe a typical physician not have um, that you had had to work on when you were moving from a from a clinical role to a maybe a more operational or encompassing role? So, I think there's a few strengths that the CMO allowed me to be maybe a different CEO than a traditional CEO. As a CMO, uh, and I'm sure many people listening and others can empathize, right? You are responsible for everything, <laughs> but you have direct control over nothing. <laughs> yeah. Right? You're oh, responsible yeah. to lead everything, but you have no budget and you have very limited direct reports, yet you need to get things done. And I think you learn, if successful, right, to lead with influence, to lead laterally, to lead up to express a vision and you learn to be comfortable leading without control. Pivoting into the CEO role, the most anxiety provoking part, right? I had never been responsible for a budget of any significant degree. In my first hospital CEO role, right? I was now responsible for 500 plus million dollars in annual operating revenue. and really had never had the experience of a traditional operator moving through progressive opportunities with larger P&Ls. Um, that was the most anxiety provoking where I said, all right, I'm not qualified for this role. But when they selected me for it, I was like, all right, I was going to step up to the challenge and prove that I could do it successfully. I was very comfortable, though, leading with influence. I was very comfortable setting strategy. I think as a clinician, right, I'd been used to delegating to my fellows and my interns and residents and trusting them. And I think I, as a leadership skill, was very comfortable delegating to my team and focusing on building that team. It really did lead me to really embrace what's our management system and to start to develop my skills in lean management um, that I didn't really need in physician leadership roles as a vice chair of a department and a CMO and a program leader. But I realized and was fortunate to have some amazing mentors that as a leader, I needed to be a coach Mm -hmm. and I needed to build teams and I needed to empower those teams to be the problem solvers. And I needed to be able to empower them to understand how to solve to root uh, and to understand scientific method that I had learned in the lab as a scientist to help solve problems clinically. So in some ways, it came full circle. Like I pulled from my experience as a scientist uh, around scientific method and said, right, how do I use this as a, a leader from my experience as a a CMO in the ability to lead and build teams and then to really develop, right, the the, the skill sets around, around operations and finance. But those may be the least important of the CEO, right? The real role of the CEO, designing that strategy, building those teams, creating the culture, uh, creating the energy and passion, um, and then hiring and building the most talented people uh, in that team around you. So um, while some some of my mentees have said I've taken a, 
a pretty circuitous path to be a hospital CEO. I feel like these different experiences personally have been invaluable for me to be successful in what I do today, leading a much, much larger team. Sure. And, you know, you talk about, you know, as a physician, you bring you bring a unique perspective as a leader, but you also, and, and, and I want to get, get you to talk about, you bring another perspective is that, that, you know, we've all gone to the doctor and we've all been patients, but you have really been a patient. And, and I wanted, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about that experience and how, how it has shaped the way you look at, look at healthcare delivery now and, and, and how it, uh, affects the decisions and the strategy that you have when it comes to taking care of patients? It really does have a, a huge impact. I, I I will add that to the list. I said I can't put that on the resume like other experiences. Um, sure. But I do think, right, our own personal health journeys and our family health journeys shape us as people, shape us as physicians, uh, and shape us as leaders, and a lot of times, right, those are things that we never want to happen to ourselves or to our family, uh, but they really do improve and enhance our ability to lead. So in 2017, um, unfortunately, I was a good enough clinician to diagnose myself with acute myeloid leukemia. Mm. I was 43 and healthy. For the first time, right, I was facing my own mortality and I knew enough to realize that I had every poor prognostic sign and had an over 80% mortality from my diagnosis. We talk about trust. I had complete trust in my care team. I was no longer a physician that day. I was a father who was really worried about two teenage boys. I was a husband that was worried about my wife uh, and what would be the impact on them. And I was desperate to do anything I could to survive for my family and for those opportunities to see the kids grow up to see kids graduate from high school, uh, right? All those lifetime milestones that as a healthy 43-year-old, right, we take for granted. Um, I didn't think as a physician or a scientist at all around my own health. I had complete trust in the care team, but I was committed that I would outwork anyone that I would be willing to take risk or chances to ensure that I could say I did everything I could to survive and see my kids grow up. I was fortunate, um, as I've been, I think, throughout my career, right? I have great mentors throughout my career. I had some of those same mentors took care of me as a patient, gave me a chance to go back to Hopkins a different time than being a resident and a chief resident, but to be there as a patient for months of inpatient chemotherapy, for hospital-acquired complications, for a bone marrow transplant from my 13-year-old son, 
uh, as the donor. So many articles today, so many books talk about the the problems in American medicine. I had the best of medicine. I had the most compassionate nurses, care team members. I had opportunities to enroll in clinical research uh, that really probably saved my life. Um, and I'm grateful for all of the, those opportunities as well as the support I had from my coworkers, my family, and others throughout it. So in some ways, to your question, how does it impact me? It motivates me even more to say, how do I give back and make a bigger impact? How do I ensure that everyone would have that same opportunity I did? Because in today's world, we know that doesn't happen. That's right. Um, but everyone should. How do we recognize, right, the outstanding, compassionate care and importance of care teams? Um, I got to benefit from it. Spending 62 days in a hospital, right? I got to see it in everything from our nutrition staff and EVS staff to the, the nurses and residents that, that took care of me. So uh, I think going back to your initial comment around humility, um, I, I thought I was a patient-centered leader before. I, I believe I was humble. I am much better as a leader after going through that experience because I have a I think, greater appreciation of what others did for me. There's very rarely as leaders that we are out of control, right? We like to be in control. That's our personality, uh, right? I had to be so vulnerable and give up control for months. Yeah. Um, but I'm alive and thriving and life couldn't be better and I couldn't be healthier today because of so many amazing people. So I could go on and on um, when you ask that question, but it's been a great experience uh, that I'm grateful to have had. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that we could have, we could talk about with that story, but one thing you mentioned was that you were involved in some clinical trials as a patient, and that probably saved your life. And we as physicians know that those are available. Uh, I'm sure if any of us had a, a very serious illness um, facing a high mortality rate like you would, we would look for those and, and be proactive about getting enrolled in a clinical trial, but majority of patients don't know about them. Um, what can you tell us from your experience? You know, how was it on your end as a patient? Was that something you had to advocate for? Or I mean, you're at Hopkins, so I would imagine it's, it's pretty standard there, but at other places, what have you seen um, around patient enrollment in, in clinical trials and are we doing enough? As a physician scientist and a clinical researcher, I used to believe that patients enrolled in clinical trials because they wanted to help others. And I tried to enroll lots of patients in clinical trials, but I was wrong for a lot of them. I didn't enroll in the clinical trial to help others. I'm glad I did. I was selfish. I enrolled in the mm -hmm. clinical trial because I wanted to live. Yeah. I wanted to see my – so I – uh, was fortunate to be at a place where clinical trials were easily accessible, but I was seeking it. I wanted, I psychologically needed to believe that I was doing everything I possibly could and enrolling in a phase one trial that was still in the safety phases, but was a promising treatment 
was an easy decision regardless of what was the clinical outcome because mentally I needed to be doing that to believe I was doing everything I could. I remember after I signed up for the clinical trial that night, I looked at my wife and I said to her, no matter what, whether I live or die, I'm good. And she said, you can't be given up. And I said, I'm not giving up in the least bit, but I know that I am doing everything I absolutely can. And I'm at peace with that. And I'm not giving up. So the first is I don't think as physicians, we recognize how important clinical trials are for our patients' well-being, both physically if for new cures, but mentally and psychologically for those for how many of our patients. Um, the other parts of the of the clinical trial um, that I think we need to understand is it's really hard for patients. To understand, even as a physician, it's hard for us to know what clinical trials we may be eligible for. Who do we ask? How do we approach? We can search anything on Google these days, right? What, I mean, we, how, we, we even do in our clinical work, right? We, we, we use Google to start to get us to the Google Scholar or to the right papers. Sure. Um, and I would challenge all of us as an industry to say, how do we, if we're truly patient-centered, and we believe that offering patients access to clinical research is patient-centered, then we have to make it easier. And we have to make the process of finding clinical trials at any organization, right? I, I left Durham and went back to Baltimore uh, to enroll in a trial because that's where I had access to. That's being patient-centered to ensure that we allow patients that knowledge and that ability to right, pursue those efforts if that aligns with their goals. So I think as a field, we can advance markedly, right? Technology should be able to really help guide us and our physicians and our nurses and others need to realize my experience as a patient that enabling me for clinical research was really, really patient-centered. Mm. The trial, the drug eventually got phase one, uh, got breakthrough approval from the FDA uh, and had an amazing impact, and I'm glad I was part of it. But I did it for me. Well, that's okay. I mean, not, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a little selfish now and again. Uh, now, my wife, my wife wouldn't agree with that. Well, David, I mean, your story is, is very inspiring. I mean, your whole career is, and we just thank you so much for uh, for being our guest. Uh, I know that uh, our listeners ha have enjoyed hearing hearing your perspective, hearing about your experience, hearing about your successes, and um, you know it's been great. We we just uh, we hope you'll uh, maybe come back on the podcast uh, uh, soon again. Thank you for the opportunity, and I'm uh, always glad to to come back and talk more and uh, share more of. Our leadership journey as we continue to uh, try to build our teams and programs. And uh, we talk about here in South Carolina of changing what's possible uh, at MUSC Health. And um, I'm so excited about all the amazing work that our teams are doing every day to do that. Well, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, everybody. And, and remember, you can follow the link to the show notes and redeem this episode for CME credit.